We're gonna jump right in. I have been out of our pulpit here for, this is, this is week five. So, so I, I, the last four messages I haven't preached, so I'm, I'm gonna make up for lost time today. I'm gonna, pre, I'm gonna drive this thing like I stole it, all right? Um, and we've got some ambitious ground to cover today. So I'm gonna fit 50 pounds of a 25-pound sack here this morning. We're gonna be going through eschatology today. Eschatology is a study of the end times, and Jesus gives some end times prophecy uh, here in our text. That's gonna be our sole focus. And, uh, and let me introduce the, the text this way. Years ago, uh, I think it was uh, the year 2000, maybe 1999, we were just starting our construction project at Revival Christian Fellowship. And uh, we had rented a tractor for the job, and someone stole the tractor. So someone had the bright idea that we were going to buy a trailer, put it on the property, so that we could watch over and not have anything else stolen. Well... They stole the trailer, right? <laughs> and, and I tell you that story because, by way of introduction because really the big idea and, and the, 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 the take home for us today is the importance of watching, the importance of, of watchfulness in our Christian walk. And this is the point that Jesus is gonna make after giving some extraordinary prophecies about uh, end time events that are gonna that are gonna take place. What happens today in Luke chapter 21 is known as the Olivet Discourse. And this is uh, discourse meaning Jesus gave a discourse. Olivet return, refers to the geography. He was up on the Mount of Olives when he gave this incredible prophecy. And you can read about it and we'll read about it today in Luke 21, but it's also in Matthew t- chapter 24, 25. That's a, the most extensive uh, covering of what Jesus gave, more, more detail given in Matthew's gospel than in the other gospels as well. Well, Mark chapter 13, uh, Jesus gave a discourse on this. By the way, I taught through the gospel of Mark, and so I would encourage you, if you want to study this further, you could listen to the teaching I gave on Mark chapter 13 um, online. Uh, Here's why this discourse should interest all of you, because Jesus is prophesying about the end of the world as we know it, and, uh, and Jesus gives some incredible warnings. Matthew's gospel, like I said, he, 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 he was, we get more detail in Matthew's gospel. I want to put it up on the screen for you. Matthew chapter 24, here's what Jesus said about this. No one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself, only the Father knows. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days, right before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up until the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be, Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. So you too must keep watch. There's our big idea. For you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this, Jesus said. If a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, if a church knew exactly when the guy was coming to rip off their trailer, right? Uh, if they knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time for the Son of Man will come when least expected. Let's jump in. Luke chapter 21, pick it up in verse five. It tells us, then as some spoke of the temple, 
how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. Uh, Mark's gospel tells us it was uh, Peter, James, John, and I believe Andrew who were the ones that, that spoke of the temple as they're sitting up there on the Mount of Olives and, and admiring it. And so they, they, they talk about how it's adorned with beautiful stones and donations. He, Jesus said, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So as we've seen, as we're going through Luke's uh, gospel here in these final chapters, what we're seeing is that Jesus is in the final week leading up to his crucifixion. Uh, at this point, he's probably just a few days away from his crucifixion. And uh, if you'll notice down in verse 37 and 38 of this same chapter, it tells us what his agenda was in these final days. Read it with me. It says, and in the daytime, he, Jesus, was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and he stayed on the mountain called Olivet, on the, 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 the Mount of Olives. Um, and then early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. And so here's how it goes down geographically. If you've ever been to, to Jerusalem, you've seen this. Maybe you've even walked there. Uh, the Mount of Olives sits up, you know, above, you know, sort of across the, the, Val the Kidron Valley um, from, from the, the Temple Mount and, and from, from Jerusalem there, splayed out before it. And so it's this incredible view. Uh, and, uh, and so you look across the Kidron Valley and there, there would sit the Temple. Now, we see the Temple Mount today, but in their day here, the temple was standing. It's not anymore because Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled. Actually, just about 40 years after Jesus gives this prophecy, utterly destroyed. But right now, the disciples don't know any of that. They're there. They're looking out at the majesty of this temple, and, uh, and it was just uh, incredible. Um, the temple took over 80 years altogether to complete. As a matter of fact, it's not even complete here. They're still um, several years away from finishing the temple. And, and the temple wasn't fully completed until just seven years before it was utterly destroyed. But at this point, it's still magnificent, still incredible to look at. The historian uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian from, from decades ago or from centuries ago, um, he talked about the, the splendor of the temple. He said it was covered on the outside with solid gold plates and with brilliant white marble. It was so brilliant that when the sun shone on it, it was blinding to look at, kind of like our patio outside, right? Just blinding uh, to look out. And it was so bright that from a distance, travelers would look up to the Temple Mount and it would appear like there was snow up on the Temple Mount. And the temple was the center of, of worship for Jewish life for almost a thousand years. And it was so revered that it was customary to swear by the temple. You know, it was like, oh, I swear on the grave of my mom. No, they would swear on the temple. And in some instances, speaking against the temple was considered blasphemous. And, and so as they're looking across this Kidron Valley from the, the vantage point of the Mount of Olives, the, you know, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, they're, they're like, check this out. Isn't this incredible? Now, I want you to note, first thing, that Jesus isn't impressed by the temple at all, uh, because he understood that the value isn't in the building, it, it, it's who's inside the building. That's what the value is. When we were building our church here, I would tell you frequently, look, Reliance Church isn't a building. 
And we're thrilled to be able to build a building, but the building is like the family car. Okay, you want something that's decent that you can put your family in, that you can rely on, but really its only purpose is to get you where you're going. And hopefully where you're going is to a maturing relationship with the Lord. Toward that end, Jesus is, is thrilled to provide us with a building. But if, but if your motivation isn't to get from point A to point B and point B being a maturing relationship with the Lord, Jesus could care less about the building, could care less about it. And so, so critically important we understand that, that this is God's heart because by and large, the, the Jews had lost sight of that. In Matthew 23, immediately prior to this event, Jesus had pronounced a series of eight woes against the religious leaders. And in one of the, the woes that he pronounces as he's giving this rebuke of the religious leaders, Jesus said this. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. In other words, they were more focused on what was going on on the outside than they were on the inside. And in a way, the temple had become a symbol of that, right? I like what David Guzik said in his commentary. He said, for many Jews of that day, the temple had become an idol. It began to mean more to the people than God himself did. Good things can become the worst idols, and sometimes God sours or takes away even good things that we make our idols, and so they're, they're remarking and they're saying, oh, look how splendid that is. And Jesus says to his disciples, these things which you see, the days are gonna come when not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So this is the first of three prophecies that Jesus now gives. This is the prophecy about the destruction that is to come. Now, as I told you, this prophecy was literally fulfilled in AD 70. Um, and what happened was the Jews had revolted against, against the Romans. And under Titus, uh, the Roman leader there, the Roman general Titus, they, uh, they came against this revolt. And they crushed the revolt. And they utterly destroyed Jerusalem. And the Jews that were left ran to the temple because the temple was the strongest, most fortified building in all of Jerusalem. And so that's kind of where they made their final stand. And one of the Roman soldiers, uh, as, the, as history goes, uh, threw a torch in and set the contents of the temple on fire. Now, the temple was incredibly constructed. These huge stones, like some of them as big as a school bus, but what happened, you know, on the outside, it's, it's adorned with, with all this massive amount of gold, trillions of dollars worth of gold in modern day equivalencies. And, and so stone doesn't burn, but all the contents did. The roof was a wood structure and all. So they set the temple on, on fire and the roof and the contents burned so incredibly hot that all the gold that was on the building melted down into the cracks and crevices between these huge great stones. 
And so what the Romans then did was they proceeded to dismantle the temple stone by stone to get to every last morsel of gold. And so by the end of it, Jesus's prophecy was literally fulfilled, not one stone left upon another. And in fact, the destruction was so complete that to this day, historians have a difficult time saying exactly where it was that the the temple actually stood. They know generally where it stood, but they don't know the exact footprint of it because the destruction was so incredible. Now, as Jesus is saying all of this, talking about the destruction of the temple, this obviously is going to hit these guys just like a ton of bricks. They're they're in shock because, because none of this has gone down. And Jesus, as he's talking about the destruction of the temple, that's the first prophecy is the literal destruction of this temple, but it's a foreshadowing of what is to come. So right now, these guys don't know any of that. All they know is that they've just been, you know, had the wind knocked out of them. And so they have a natural question to ask. And we're going to see them ask it now in verse seven. It says, they asked him saying, teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? So understand, Jesus, he's now going to reply to their question. And his reply will have in mind both the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the immediate history that what the disciples will actually see come to pass here in the first century, but it will also encompass the ultimate return of Jesus at the end of the age. Prophetically, you got to understand, this is really important, hear what I'm about to say. Prophetically, the two are connected, okay? The destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in the first century and the ultimate destruction of the world in the end of the age. Prophetically, they are connected, but they're separated by many, many centuries. And what Jesus is going to detail here is a combination of what's about to take place 40 years from now and as well what's going to take place at the end of the age, what we know as the Great Tribulation. Now, at this point, it's helpful for me to make a distinction between the nation of Israel and the Christian church. Because when Jesus is talking to them here, he's answering their question, and a lot of his answer has to do with Israel and it has to do with their history. It doesn't necessarily, uh, in total, have to do with the church. Let me explain that. And to do that, I'm going to hit the pause button before we get into Jesus's answer. Let me prime the pump and set the stage. Have you turn to Daniel chapter 9. Turn over to Daniel chapter 9. It's to the left there in the Old Testament. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. And uh, what happens here in Daniel chapter 9, as you're making your way there, is that God gives Daniel uh, a vision, an interpretation of a vision, right? And, and so we're going to read through that because God is prophetically giving, giving a vision to, to Daniel, giving an interpretation of a vision to Daniel, which pertains to the Jews and to Jerusalem, all right? And, and so and it's a good understanding for us to understand the chronology of the end of the world. All right, so so here we go. Um, Verse 24. Here's what God says to and through the prophet Daniel. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people, speaking of the Jews, and for your holy city, speaking of Jerusalem. And what are the weeks determined for? He goes on, to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, 
to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Now, what's the only way that that is possible? To make an end for transgressions, to make an end to sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity. What's the only way that that's possible? This is a question in church, okay? When you ask a question in church, what's usually the right answer? Jesus, right? There you go. That is, is the only way that this is possible. And so this is a prophecy about the coming Messiah, right? Not just about the last days, but the coming Messiah and his role in the last days. And so he continues, verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command. He's talking about a command given by Artaxerxes, who's the, the ruler, right? And, and it was made in 445 BC. Hasn't, and, and he says, so no one understand. It hasn't happened yet in Daniel's day, by the way. But he says, no one understand that, that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, when it says seven weeks, it's talking about Sabbatic years, which means seven weeks of years, okay? That's important to understand. So basically what he's saying is there's gonna be seven weeks of years and then there's going to be 62 weeks of years. The, the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, 62 weeks of years, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. What he's talking about is that the Messiah is going to come and that the Messiah is going to be brutally killed, that he's going to be crucified. This is what Daniel is prophesying about. And and he wasn't crucified for himself. What happened? God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of all mankind. The Bible says all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. You all have sinned, every last one of us, right? And the only thing that can cleanse and atone your sin, make you right with God, is that a sacrifice would be made. And so Jesus was what came, and he lived that perfect life. He was the, the sacrifice, the atonement for your sin and for my sin. And it's by his stripes, the Bible says, that we are healed. And so this is what it's talking about, that after the the 62 weeks, seven plus 62 is 69 weeks, Messiah shall become cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come, this is speaking of Rome and the Antichrist, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, um, and the end of it, Shall, um, shall, shall, uh, I'm sorry, and the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And then he, this is specifically speaking about Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many um, for one week, right? That's, that's, uh, that's seven years, one week of year, okay? So, so seven years. Uh, but in the middle of the week, three and a half years into it, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abominations shall one be who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. All right, so I've been explaining that as we go. Let me unpack it a little bit more. Um, 70 weeks are determined for the Jews and for Jerusalem. This is a prophecy specifically saying, look, here's what you Israelites can expect in your history. 
Um, and so what happens, first of all, is that he says you're gonna have, you're gonna have seven weeks of years. So you're gonna have 49 years, right, until the city and the walls are rebuilt. The, the, the prophecy goes out, or the proclamation, rather, goes out um, by King Artaxerxes. In March, on March 14th, 445 BC, he gives this proclamation, go rebuild the, the, the city of Jerusalem and the walls. And so that's when it goes out, 49 years, right? Uh, um, that the, the proclamation goes out 49 years later, they rebuild Jerusalem. Then 62 weeks of years after that, right? So 483 years after it's rebuilt, he says that the Messiah is going to appear. And that happened on, on uh, April 6th, 32 AD. This is when Jesus came into the city. We read about it just a couple chapters back. He comes into the city and everybody proclaims and, you know, welcoming him with palm branches and all, and he makes his triumphal entry. And so this happened 173, 800, or, uh, I'm sorry, 173,880 days, precisely as Daniel prophesied that it would. The one week of year, or the, the, the seven weeks of years, plus the 62 weeks of years, Jesus came just as was prophesied. So that 69 week of years accounted for, what about the 70th week of years? Well, what happens is God says that the Messiah is going to be cut off, not for himself. Jesus Christ was crucified, and he suffered, and he died, and was buried, and then he rose again on the third day, conquering Satan's sin and death. And at that point, what God did on the prophetic clock was he hit the pause button, all right? So the 69th week of years prophecy done, then the 70th week of years not begun yet because that's gonna be the tribulation period. In between the two, this is what's known as the time of the Gentiles or as the church age. And so let me explain that. Matthew 22, keep your finger here in Daniel. We'll come right back. Matthew 22, just turn there real quickly. Let me read to you the first 10 verses of Matthew 22. Jesus answered, I'm gonna just start reading it. It's Matthew 22, verses one through 10. Jesus answered, and he spoke to them again by parables. And so Jesus, now he's gonna give this parable. And it's about this idea. Here it is. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. This is a picture of the prophets that God sent to the nation of Israel to call them to himself, and how they rejected the prophets. We're gonna see that theme continue. Again, verse four, he sent out other servants, saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready, come to the wedding. But they made light of it, and they went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. This is speaking of how the prophets were maligned and mistreated and many killed as God would, would try and reach the nation of Israel. But, verse 7, when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Okay, this is what we're reading about Daniel's prophecy, how this is gonna go down. This is what we're reading about in, in Luke chapter 21 as Jesus now giving the prophecy saying, look, not one stone's gonna be left upon another. Okay, this is, this is the, the theme here. Then he said, verse eight, to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited 
We're not worthy. He's talking about the invitation that went out to the nation of Israel. They rejected the Messiah. Therefore, he said, go into the highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. And so those servants went out into the highways and they gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Here's the deal. This is a picture of the time of the Gentiles. This is a picture of the church age. And we are here because God loves you incredibly. The Bible's very clear. God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. We're all familiar with John 3.16, but hear the heart of God in John 3.16 and in John 3.17. Here's what Jesus said. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, he says in verse 17, but that the world through him might be saved. Here's what I want you to hear. Because today, the, the warning for us is that the end of the world is coming and we gotta wait and we gotta watch. We're gonna see the good news about the rapture of the church in just a minute that's gonna happen. But today, I gotta ask you the question, where you stand with God and have you received the forgiveness of your sins that can only come through confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, surrendering your life to him. I'm gonna give you an invitation to do that today because it's so critically important because this is coming down. It's gonna happen. Listen, God says in his word, who else can tell you what's gonna happen before it happens? He says, I'm the only one that can do that. And, and the issue is, is that the prophecies that Jesus has given here, some have been fulfilled already. Some are yet to be fulfilled, but he called the shot before it went down. You gotta know that Jesus is real. He, he said beforehand, here's what's gonna happen, and then it happened. And the stuff that hasn't happened yet, we can take to the bank that it's going to happen because he was right about all the other stuff. Okay, and so today I gotta, I gotta know do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? I'm gonna give you that invitation when we're all done. And so, we now live in the church age. We live in a time of grace and incredible mercy, but a day is coming when that's gonna to come to an end. And then it's time for judgment and it's time for the wrath of God to be poured out on an unrepentant world. Here's what God says to us through his word in 1 Thessalonians chapter four. It says, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout. This is talking about the end of the age for, for the church age, okay? The Lord himself is gonna come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up, an important phrase, I'll come back to that, will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage one another with these words. That phrase caught up in the Latin Vulgate, it is the word raptus. We get the word rapture from that. If anybody tells you the word rapture is not in the church, yes it is. Or not in the Bible, yes it is. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And the issue is we're going to be caught up. We're going to be raptured as a church. A day is coming when Jesus is going to say, everybody out of the pool, right? And he's going to rapture his church. And then what's going to happen, the clock starts ticking on the prophetic clock again. 
We live in this parenthesis of time between the 69th week of Daniel and the 70th week of Daniel. It's the time of grace during the church age and it will come to an end and the clock will start ticking again. And the clock starts ticking on the 70th week of Daniel, which is the great tribulation. By the way, I taught through the book of Revelation. Go to, to Revelation, specifically chapter 6, I believe. You can listen to the message there. It's all about the great tribulation and what those who are here should expect during the great tribulation. But here's the thing. God doesn't want to pour his wrath out on you. God's wrath is poured out on believers. His desire is that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. And so God's going to take his people, his church, out of the world before he pours his wrath out. That's the, that's the rapture of the church. And so, so that day is coming. And it can happen at any time. No prophecies need to be fulfilled before God can rapture his church. It can happen before I'm done preaching this message. It can happen before we get to our cars today. It's going to happen. We don't know the day or the hour, but we can tell by the times it's getting worse and worse. I'll talk about that in a minute. So the prophecy that God gives to Daniel here in Daniel chapter 9, it's about what that, that is going to look like, that time frame and, and leading up to it, and then what that 70th week is going to look like. It starts with peace, which will last three and a half years. Everybody will think the Antichrist is the answer to all the problems. And so the first three and a half years go relatively well, and then at the three and a half years, year mark, literally all hell breaks loose. And it's a horrible time. Now, this is why it's so important that we heed the words of, of Isaiah the prophet. Here's what Isaiah the prophet said. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Hear this today, if you don't know Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Listen, what I'm gonna offer you today at the end of the service is an opportunity to seek the Lord. But this is not fire insurance. The Bible is very clear. There's gonna be a lot of people who say, oh, Lord, Lord, didn't we do, we knew you, we did all this stuff for you. And he's gonna say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. There's a lot of people who say the fire insurance prayer. I could use a little insurance. I could use a handy guy like Jesus around here. No, the Bible's clear that calling upon the name of the Lord and being a new creation in, in Christ, it also includes repentance, okay? It's a turning from and it's a turning to. And so it's a matter of repentance. You read your Bible. Biblical Christianity, biblical salvation is a combination of belief and repentance. And it is the Spirit of God who helps you to turn from and to turn to. And it has to be both. If your life looks just like the world and yet you name the name of Christ, you need to take a really good long walk with the, with the question, are you truly saved? Are you truly saved? Because it's one of, of belief accompanied with repentance which the Holy Spirit does. I'm not suggesting that salvation is a work of your flesh. There's nothing you can do to earn salvation. It's completely a work of God. But it's a matter of belief and turning to and trusting in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you an invitation to do that today. So Paul says in the book of Romans, Romans 10, Romans chapter 11, that God reached out to the Gentiles um, not only to redeem the Gentiles because of his great love for us, but also 
to reach the Jews in spite of their rejection of him. You can read about that in Romans 10 and 11. But the point is, is that God's plan of redemption involves both the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, this is an important point. We go back to Luke chapter 21 now. Because I want you to see here, as Jesus now answers his disciples these questions, hey, when's this going to take place? What are the signs that we should be watching for? As he answers them, it covers both of his plans, okay? He's gonna, it matters to us as a church, but the focus really largely is on what the Jews can expect. And so we're going to see here in Jesus' answer... And, I'm, and we're gonna put this up on the screen for you. You might wanna take a picture if you're taking notes because it's not gonna appear later in the message. And, and so if you're gonna study this later, you might wanna take a picture of what goes up here. But we're going to see in Jesus' answer a picture of the first three and a half years of the tribulation in verses eight through, through 19. We're going to see a picture of the immediate destruction that awaits Jerusalem in verses 20 through 24. We're going to see a picture of the last three and a half years of the tribulation in verses 25 through 28. We're going to see the signs for both the church and Israel to watch for in these last days in verses 29 through 33. And we're going to get our marching orders in verses 34 through 36, the importance of watching. All right, so let's jump into Jesus' answer here. Verse 8. They asked, oh, so they asked him, hey, what, you know, when, when's all this stuff going to happen and what signs should we be looking for? And he said, take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is drawn near. Therefore, he says, do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, don't be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. And then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and signs uh, from heaven. So Jesus says the last days leading up, you know, hey, what's going to happen? When's this going to happen? What are the signs? <clears throat> He's answering this. And he says, leading up to that last day, it's going to be characterized by false Christ coming on the scene, by wars and rumors of wars, by nation rising against nation, by earthquakes, by famines, by troubles. Now, certainly this is true for the tribulation, but I want you to understand that in our day, we're seeing the same things as this time approaches, okay? It's true for the tribulation, but it's also true now. Um, we're, we're going to see these signs as they approach. And, and the issue is, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus uses um, metaphor um, that is used in Romans chapter 8 about childbirth. Um, he says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, Romans 8.22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In Mark's gospel, Jesus uses the same metaphor to describe these events. He says, all these are the beginning of birth pains, right? Now, if you've had a child, you know how the, the labor progresses, don't you? Right, starts with a contraction, starts with a twinge, starts with some pain, and, and you, you endure this contraction, and then what happens? The contractions get more and more intense, and they come more and more frequently. Jesus says that's what it's going to be like at the end of the age, that, 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 that all of these signs are going to become more and more frequent and more and more intense. And he talks about wars, he talks about earthquakes, he talks about famines. 
Just a few statistics for you to understand. There have been more wars in the 20th century than ever before in human history. The 20th century was the first century that we had worldwide war, that it covered the whole world, and it happened not once, it happened twice, first time in human history. The Red Cross estimates just in the 20th century that uh, over 100 million people were killed in warfare. That, that there was, you know, in 1993 alone, just that one year, there were 29 major wars that were fought in that one year. 23 million people have been killed in warfare since the end of World War II. And so what we see is an increase of wars, just as Jesus predicted, just like birth pangs. Earthquakes, right? We've had a lot of them lately. Did you know in the last 25 days, we have had um, more than, let me, let me see if my math is right. No, I'm wrong. Last eight days, we've had like 25 uh, earthquakes, 6.0 or greater. And, and the average is that you would have like four. And so during that, during that period of time, in a one week's time span, an eight day time span, 25 earthquakes of six or greater. Um, in the last 18 years, there's been nine monster earthquakes. Over half a million people have been killed by earthquakes over the last 18 years. The largest one was the 9.0 that hit Sumatra in Indonesia. Um, I, I wonder, I think maybe the Japan uh, earthquake might have been a little bit larger than that even. And the one in Sumatra that hit in December 2004, it was so big it actually altered the earth's rotation. Okay, these are massive, massive events. It's just like childbirth. They're becoming more and more frequent and they're becoming more and more intense. Famines. The number of famines in the 20th century increased nearly 70% from the century before that. So, so incredible signs of the time coming just like childbirth, right? So incredible. And so we're going to see these things now before the rapture, right? And we're going to see them build in strength and frequency as the time comes up to the rapture. And then those who don't go through the rapture, who don't go and be taken out of this world by Jesus, they're going to have to go through the horribleness of it getting even worse. My daughter Megan, when she was pregnant, she, like her mom, fast labor. They got her to the hospital on her first child, and she's like, you know, I need something for pain. They're like, it's too late. You've progressed too long. We can't give you something for pain. She grabs, you know, her husband, like, you know, by the face and says, get me something for pain, and he's just freaking out. So that finally, <coughs> they give her something for the pain. And, and then, you know, she, she you know, has her, her child, like, you know, within the hour, whatever. But, but the, the, the issue here is like the, the rapture is sort of like that. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. But man, we need something for the pain. Rapture us out. Get us out of the way because what's coming, man, ain't nobody want to go through that. But that's what it's going to be down. That's what it's going to be like. Now, there's multiple aspects to what is coming here. And again, you read through the, the or you, you, you listen to the Revelation series that, that I did. You, you'll get more and more details about what's, what's going to go down during that time. But we pick it up now, verse 12. Jesus says, but before all these things, they're going to lay their hands on you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to deliver you up to the synagogues and the prisons. By the way, this speaks of both religious persecution and secular persecution. Don't we see an increase in both of those going on today? Just like birth pangs, we actually do. There's been more Christian persecution. More Christians have been martyred for their faith 
in the, 21, in the 20th and 21st century than in all the centuries before that. Did you know that? Christians are dying by the hundreds, by the thousands across our world today. There's been incredible persecution. It's been, never been a more difficult time to be a Christian than it is right now. Um, he says, you'll, you'll be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. And certainly we saw that in the disciples' lives, didn't we? He's telling them, hey, you're gonna go through this. Acts chapter four, Acts chapter five, Acts chapter six, Acts chapter eight. What do we see? We see Peter and John arrested. We see Peter and all the disciples arrested again, thrown in jail. We see Stephen called before the Sanhedrin, has to give an account. They end up stoning him to death. We see a great persecution come out against the church and the church being scattered, right? And 40 years after this, we see Rome come and just destroy all of Jerusalem and the temple. And so Jesus says, look, you're going you're gonna call, to be called before the kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it's going to turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. And certainly we saw that. We watched Paul throughout the scriptures being called before kings and so on, and he would use it as a, as a testimony. He says, therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you're going to answer. In the original language, he's basically, Jesus is saying, don't rehearse what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit, he goes on to say, will help you. I will give you, verse 15, a mouth and wisdom for which your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost by your patience possess your souls. Now we know that all of the disciples died martyrs' deaths. So does that make Jesus a liar when he says not a hair of your head is gonna be lost? No, what Jesus is talking about is their ultimate fate. And basically, nobody's gonna snatch you out of my hand. And you're not gonna lose one single thing, even if they take your life. You're not gonna lose anything. Because I'm going to be with you and, I've, and, and you have a future and a hope with me in heaven. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is an incredible promise that Jesus gives. So there's multiple aspects to what Jesus is talking about here. Um, you know, it's, it obviously applies to the immediate things that the disciples are going to go through, but it also pertains to what we are going to go through, and ultimately it pertains to the end of the age, what it's going to be like in the Great Tribulation. Listen, for you and me, we need to understand, here's what Jesus said in John's Gospel. He said, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus said, they'll persecute you also. That's a promise. We don't frame that and put it up on the wall, but it's a promise. You're gonna go through persecution for Jesus' sake. He said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. He said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Listen, we're gonna go through that. And of course, during the great tribulation, they're gonna go through that in spades. Verse 25, Jesus says, there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars. He's referring now to the second half of the great tribulation. And on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectations of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be <coughs> shaken. He says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And now when these things begin to happen, Jesus says, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. 
He's talking about the last three and a half years of tribulation. He's talking specifically about, about the Jews that are going to go through that tribulation. And there's going to be many tribulation saints. So there will be, be, be people during the tribulation, even after the rapture of the church, that God will bring to a saving faith in Christ. But they're going to have to endure the wrath that he's pouring out on the world. Listen, we don't want to be a part of that. Verse 29, Jesus now gives a parable. He says, then he spoke a parable to them. Look at the fig tree. And all the trees, when they are already budding, you see and you know for yourselves that summer is now near. And so you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, Jesus says, will by no means pass away. Now, throughout Scripture, understand that God compares Israel, the nation of Israel, to a fig tree. And in Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37, he gives a remarkable prophecy. He promises to restore Israel to their land after they are dispersed from their land and after their nation is destroyed. He promises that a day is coming, he's going to restore them to their land, that he's going to multiply their fruit, and that he's going to breathe life into the dry bones of their nation, right? And <clears throat> never before in the history of humankind has a nation been destroyed and cease from being a nation and then the day comes when they are restored as a nation. It's never happened. It happened for the one and only time on May 14th, 1948, when God restored Israel as a nation. Prior to that, they didn't exist as a nation for 2,000 years. But on May 14th, 1948, they were restored as a nation. And I, notice what, I want you to notice what Jesus says about it in verse 32. He says, this generation will by no means pass away until all things take place. We, we take from that and take a walk with the idea that what he's talking about is the generation that sees Israel restored as a nation is gonna see the return of Jesus Christ. Now, there are those that argue and say, well, you know, uh, this really didn't become truth until 1967, when Israel took possession of Jerusalem, right, in 1967. Okay, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Now, do, can I say that absolutely, categorically, that that's the truth? No, but here's what I can say. There's, there's pretty in, good indication maybe that it is. We know, just from experience, guys, you look at our world, you look at our nation, how bad, how bad can it get? It's pretty bad. And, and the thing is, Jesus is returning soon. He's returning soon. And this is where we close with a point of application for you today. Because all of this is amazing to consider. And, it, and it's, it's pretty jaw-dropping to go, wow, this is what's going down. And, and Jesus has been right all along. We have no reason to believe that he's not going to be right about the end of the age and everything that's coming. But here's what he says. 
he says, verse 34, take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, with drunkenness, and with the cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all of these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus says, look, you better not be sleepwalking through life. You better have your head on a swivel. Exactly what, what we read in Ephesians chapter five. Awake you who asleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And I want you to notice what Jesus says here. He says, take heed to yourselves. This means you take a good long look in the mirror of your life. And he says, you, you, gotta, you gotta take heed to yourself lest... Listen to this, your hearts be weighed down, your life is weighed down, your cares, your concerns, weighed down with what? With carousing drunkenness and the cares of this life. Now, carousing, you know, the translation of this, really what, what some guys say, it has to do with the merriment that comes from intoxication. Some people say it has to do with the effects of intoxication, the hangover and the headache and all of that. But then he goes on to talk about drunkenness, which clearly is intoxication. And it's not just a drunkenness with, with alcohol and substances and all. We can become intoxicated with the, the drive for success. We can become intoxicated with the pride of life. We can become intoxicated with our stuff and the accumulation of our goods and all of that stuff. We can become intoxicated with the pleasures of this world. And this, this word carousing, let me come back to that. The idea here is partying with abandon. Years ago, I was working as a paramedic. We were in the city of Paris. We were on 4th Street. We were at a gas station. I don't know how much time you spend in Paris, but 4th Street at a gas station Friday night. There we are, and there's this gal. My partner points her out, and she is, in one of these things is not like the other. Man, she didn't belong there. She was wearing this green gown. She looked like she was going to her prom. Young gal. And, and there on 4th Street, she didn't fit. You know, and, and, and we, we, we saw her. We're just like, wow, look at that girl. She's dressed to the nines and all. Two o'clock that morning, we were pronouncing that girl dead. She went out partying with her friends. They were driving in two cars. The one car was ahead of the other on a dark road in Paris that pulled over. They all got out to wave their friends down. This gal in the middle of the road waving their friends down in the other car. Her friends never saw her, killed her dead. And the issue here, this idea is such a picture of partying with abandon. And Jesus is saying, look, take heed to yourselves because the end of the world is coming. The rapture of the church is coming. The end of your life is coming. And some of us, like this gal, partying with abandon don't realize that in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, it can all be done. The Bible says your life is a vapor. It's here for a little while and then it's gone. Guys, I want to ask you, are you living your life in watchfulness because Jesus is coming back?